Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical, environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parker. Welcome to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, in Berkeley, California today. And as always, I'm joined by... Um, from Ohio, it's Bob Bozenko. And as always, looking forward to uh, today's guest, talking to today's guest. Yep. Uh, and today we're talking with uh, Maya Rossum. Uh, excuse me, Maya Van Rossum. And we will uh, get a little bit more into the bio, but uh, Maya is the author of a, a book called Green Amendment, which I had the pleasure of reading this weekend. And Maya, you know, the first chapter, you start off with the impacts of fracking in the Marcella shell. There's a, it's a, there's a lot of your work seems to be focused on fracking. Um, just, real, just real quickly, tell us why you chose to start your book with uh, uh, the stories that you told uh, about fracking in the Marcella shell. So the way I originally got set on this nationwide path of lifting up environmental rights so they're given the same highest constitutional standing as the other fundamental rights we hold dear, like free speech and freedom of religion, was actually in the fracking context. And using Pennsylvania's long ignored constitutional Green Amendment, what I now call a Green Amendment, to defeat a very pro-fracking law that was about to make an already devastating situation in Pennsylvania even worse. So it was just natural to start there. Oh, excellent. Uh, Folks, we're talking with uh, Maya Van Rossum, who is a a veteran environmentalist and attorney on a mission to uh, use our state and federal constitutions to empower activists and provide hope to communities everywhere, uh, seeking to address environmental racism, the climate crisis, and the ongoing ravages of polluted water and air toxic contamination. She is the founder of Green Amendments for Generations, which we're going to talk about. So I'll let her say more about that than we do, than we will. Uh, she's also known as the Delaware Riverkeeper and has uh, worked with an organization called the, called the Delaware Riverkeeper for over 30 years, using advocacy, science, litigation to protect the Delaware River watershed. Um, maybe Maya, uh, just kind of kicking off, um, can you actually sp- explain to our audience a little bit more about what Green Amendments are? So Green Amendments are um, amendments that are put in the Bill of Rights section of our state and federal constitutions, and as a result, give our rights to pure water, clean air, a stable climate, and healthy environments the highest constitutional standing and protection that you can get here in the United States of America. What I say to people is, you know, we all know how powerfully the right to free speech, freedom of religion are protected as well as other fundamental freedoms. Well, by having the right language in that Bill of Rights placement in our state and federal constitutions, we give that same most powerful protection to our rights as people to a clean, safe, and healthy environment. So very simply, that's what a Green Amendment is, and that's what a Green Amendment does. And it's really about taking that human right that we all hear about, right? We all hear, we have a right to clean water and clean air, right? If you go to any environmental rally, um, you're inevitably will hear that out of somebody's mouth. Um, But the truth is, here in the United States, that right is not enforceable, except at this point in three states, in part due to my work. So if a right is um, not enforceable, do you really have it? 
I would suggest that when it comes to the environment, no, not really. And uh, constitutional green amendments help us change that. You mentioned Pennsylvania in your first answer regarding fracking. Um, how is how did that come about? What does it say, and how does it um, work in real time? So in in actual fact, Pennsylvania's Green Amendment was added to the Pennsylvania Constitution in 1971, so over 50 years ago. But almost as soon as it was added, it was declared by the Pennsylvania courts to be just a statement of policy. And the way I describe policy in the legal arena to people is policy is just good advice. And you can take it or you can leave it. And in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, they left it. Uh, and so for 42 years in the Bill of Rights section of the Pennsylvania Constitution, it actually said that people have a right to pure water, clean air, and a healthy environment. They use a few more words than that. Um, and also very clearly creates an obligation on the state to act as the trustee of the natural resources of the state and to protect them for the benefit of all the people, including future generations yet to come. But because that language was just policy, it was powerful, it was inspirational, but it didn't change anything. During that 42 years, um, when it was just policy, that's when fracking came to Pennsylvania and was um, wreaking havoc on Pennsylvania's environments and Pennsylvania's communities. But despite um, how easily it was for the fracking industry to advance under Pennsylvania law and federal law, the frackers wanted to find a way to make it even easier for themselves, as did their friends in the legislature. And so they literally in 2012 passed a piece of legislation that made it even easier for the frackers to frack. And the, the industry was going to expand exponentially if this law known as Act 13 was allowed to stand. I and my role as the Delaware Riverkeeper and my organization, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, have been fighting fracking for a long time. In fact, there's no fracking anywhere within the boundaries of my very large watershed, um, in part due to the leadership of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. But fracking was advancing in the part of Pennsylvania outside of our watershed. And we knew and know that fracking anywhere is bad for all of us everywhere. And given that we are one of the few organizations that litigates, we decided we had to take this law on. But, you know, it's hard to challenge and defeat a law um, when it's passed by the legislature and signed by the governor. You need some sort of higher power. And we realized at the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, along with our legal team, that in the Pennsylvania Constitution, we had this long ignored environmental rights amendment. And so we decided we were going to challenge this law by claiming in no small part that it was that these provisions that we were concerned about would result in a violation of the environmental rights of the people of Pennsylvania and the constitutional obligations of the Pennsylvania government officials to protect the natural resources for present and future generations. Case went all the way up to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, very conservative Supreme Court at the time. And long story short, we were victorious. And um, in very significant part because of that environmental rights amendment and the chief justice of the court who wrote the um, plurality opinion said that the provisions of Act 13 that we were challenging were in fact unconstitutional because they would violate that environmental rights amendment. And as a result, we defeated those provisions of the law before they ever went forward. Legal life was breathed into Pennsylvania's environmental rights amendment 
And that was what started me on my journey. What, what are the other states with the, with the Green Amendments in the Constitution? I, I think I read Montana was one of them. Yeah, so Montana, like Pennsylvania, um, also added its amendment to the Constitution early on. They actually added their amendment a year after Pennsylvania in 1972. And that amendment had its own story and journey um, and didn't get utilized in significant ways for a while uh, until... I think it was about around 2000, it might have been 1999, it got its first most powerful use, um, challenging industrial gold mining operations, uh, and was victorious. And then it got used in a couple of important ways and then kind of went quiet for a while. And then starting in 2019, it started to get utilized again. It started to get attention again and be used again against industrial gold mining and in some other um, contexts. And I, I like to think, I can't swear. I like to think, though, that my Green Amendment movement, which I had started um, to advance around 2014 after our fracking victory, I like to think that that kind of inspired them to say, hey, wait a second, we have one of these in our constitution, too, and to start to utilize theirs. And so they've been there's been some really successful progress in Montana as well. And then in 2021, we were successful. The Green Amendment for the Generations movement that I've started was successful in inspiring and then through our education and our grassroots organizing and support activities, working with partners like Environmental Advocates of New York in the state of New York, we're successful in, in um, securing a New York Green Amendment that passed by over 70% of the vote in November of 2021 and is now starting to get use in that state. And so... Um... I also, you know, kind of looking through just things on social media, et cetera, I see that there's like a number of chapters around the country. I saw where there's like Green Amendments, Arizona and Green Amendments, New Mexico. I'm kind of I'm kind of curious how uh, receptive people, particularly in like environmental circles, have been to uh, to to this. I mean, how much are people jumping on board and like kind of working to get Green Amendments passed in their in their states? So it's very interesting how the Green Amendment resonates with, with different folks in different places and spaces um, and in different states. Uh, but it really is resonating, especially with grassroots activists that are on the front line of battles against serious threats to our environment or climate, those who are dealing with environmental racism. Um, they really see the value and the power of having this constitutional protection for an environmental right. And so, and originally when I first started the movement, you know, 2014, 2015, I thought, hey, this is a really powerful idea. And I tried to go around the, the, the nation just telling people about our grand victory in Pennsylvania and saying, you know, you should go forth and do this. But what also became pretty um, clear pretty quickly was that it wasn't actually that simple. This is a, a simple idea that people can rally around and embrace, but it can be quite complex to make sure you get it right in terms of the language. And there are there's a lot of opposition, right, from industry and their friends in the legislature who peddle a lot of misinformation or try to get people to, you know, for example, take the language out of the Bill of Rights section and say it's no problem if it's all the way down in the miscellaneous section. And actually, fundamentally, it's dramatically different. So I, I started to realize that it was more important for me to partner up with folks and use my knowledge and my expertise and my experience, both my activist expertise and my legal expertise to work with community members 
to understand this so they could make it happen in their state. And at this point, we have had proposals and or we have active engagement building in, in over a dozen states, literally from coast to coast. And it's interesting who those states are. So, you know, naturally, New Jersey and Delaware, they're part of my Delaware River watershed. You know, no surprise that we have movements that are happening there. But there's a really powerful movement advancing in New Mexico. Maine has a really great effort. Washington State has a great effort. There's really powerful Green Amendment movement advancing in um, Hawaii. I have uh, folks in Iowa who are eager to advance this. And there's a legislator who has put forth language in Iowa. I've been talking with folks in Nevada as well. Florida has a movement that's advancing and there are even more. So um, it's really interesting. And every movement has started a different way. Sometimes it was a single person who heard a podcast like this and picked up the phone and called me afterwards and said, hey, Maya, how do I make this happen in my state? That's how that's how New Mexico and Maine began. And they're some of the most powerful movements advancing right now. Sometimes it is an environmental organization. Sometimes it's a progressive legislator. But always what I say is, hey, let's work together. Let's partner up. We need the grassroots. We need the frontline communities. We need the organizations. And we need government officials to understand why this is so important. And by working collaboratively, creating language that resonates with that state and developing an, a grassroots movement that works for that state, nothing's cookie cutter in my Green Amendment movement. Um, that's how we're gonna make powerful progress. And so we work in partner and, and it's, it's, it's going beautifully, but it is, again, it's very different everywhere. But I try to be that connector with cross-pollination of ideas around language and strategies between the states. And it's working well. Is the um, constitutional amendment process in most states kind of similar to federal where the, the legislatures vote on it? Or are there like referendums of voters or just kind of curious how like these get started and who you have to go to to actually get it done? You know, do you need like a progressive legislature? Or can the people? I mean, I, it seems to me this is one of those issues when you see a lot of them where public opinion is overwhelmingly on your side, but, you know, once you reach the higher levels of politics, it's, it's a totally, you know, not. So I'm just kind of curious about this one. Like, who, who do you have to go after? And what, what kind of things do they do to try to get these things, you know, put into power, put into place? Yeah. So that's a really great um, question and lead into to, to why I made the strategic decision to start at the States, because you're right, right. As you go in the higher echelons of politics, things do become more, much more politicized, right, and partisan. And it is true that I think at the federal level, we are, you know, we're unlikely to succeed right now in the near term. Um, and it would be hard to succeed at the federal level regardless, because to get a federal constitutional amendment passed, you need a vote of three quarters of the states, right? And as you said, the legislators have that primary role. Um, at the state level, there, first off, there's a lot of power in the hands of the states when it comes to environmental protection. So when you can get a constitutional amendment, you have secured a really powerful boost forward in how you can address environmental protection, the climate crisis, you know, environmental justice, ending environmental racism. 
So that's powerful and important. Constitutional amendments at the state level are much more accessible. Whatever the pathway at that state, um, yes, politics gets involved, but the, the, the people are much more of a driving force because there's so much greater connectivity between their, the people and their legislative government, both in terms of advocacy, in terms of votes and voting all the way around. And so consequently, we do see uh, state amendments being amended all the time. So when you put that that together with the, the power that the states have, it becomes just smart to start my green amendment movement at the state level, going state by state by state, getting these amendments, because as we're doing that, we're educating the populace, we're educating the people, we're talking to them about why the amendment is powerful, how it makes a difference. Um, educating the legislators, amendments get passed, they start to get utilized. And so we're proving how they work and how valuable they are all the way around and really creating the foundation necessary for that federal amendment. So good strategy says start at the state level first, educate people, organize people, get success. And then at some point we'll have a tipping point for the federal. Now, in terms of the state process, there are three primary ways that it can happen, and it is each state has a combination of the few. Sometimes it is just ballot initiative. So like in Florida, they're going down that path, and it's really about getting the right number of signatures, people gathering signatures from people so that their proposed amendment can be placed placed on the ballot, and then you get a vote of the people. That is certainly a huge effort, and that pathway exists in some states, but not all. The other, another pathway is to have a constitutional convention, and you get your legislators, periodically they have to vote on whether or not to reopen the whole constitution in a state. People tend to not like that because often constitutions have some good stuff and some bad stuff. And if you open it up, you're reopening everything. The other pathway that I, that I so far I found exists everywhere and actually has proven to be a pretty effective way to advance the Green Amendment movement is that you begin with a vote of the legislators. Um, sometimes it's a vote once. Sometimes it's a vote, you know, in two consecutive legislative sessions or years. Um, Sometimes it's a majority vote, sometimes it's two thirds, sometimes it's three fifths, it depends on the state. But once your legislators um, vote to advance the amendment, it skips the governor's office and goes straight to the people. So it tends to be a, a combination, um, but those tend to be the three pathways. But that legislative pathway, the reason why it works is when people say, well, What's the language we're talking about? We can show them and say, here's the language. What we're showing is we can get all partisan support in a number of states because everybody knows they need clean water and clean air. So we can get over, over the hump of some of the politics. But we do have some of that misuse of power by legislators who will refuse to put the amendment up for um, a hearing in the during the committee stage of the process. And as a result, they can gum up the works. So there ends up being a lot of advocacy and activism to have to get over that hump. Because as you said, if we can get it advancing forward, pretty much everybody's with us. So we just need to get over some of those strategic humps that legislators use. Folks, you're listening to the Green and Red podcast talking about green the Green Amendments movement with Maya Van Rossum. Uh, be sure to check out our website at greenandredpodcast.org. 
Um, I, have a, I have a question actually about the politics. In this last election, we actually saw the Democrats make some gains in state legislature legislatures. We saw like at least four states have that sort of triumvirate of like, you know, governor and the two, this two state um, legislative houses, like states like Michigan and Minnesota and Maryland and one in Pennsylvania. But I'm wondering, do y'all see that as, is there an opportunity that you see, particularly with the three M's, right? With Minnesota and uh, Michigan and Maryland to like kind of try and advance green amendments. So I um, sort of have a rule that I don't decide where green amendments are going to advance. It's really up to the people. So I, I have to, I'm kind of like a vampire. I say, I have to be invited in for me to start working your state because while I have a lot of expertise and knowledge and can provide a lot of education and, and assistance, ultimately, right, the amendment has to be advanced by uh, and secured by the people of that state. So they're, they're the ones who have to own it. It has to be their language, their strategy, and their desire to have this protection. So I really go out, I inspire. But as soon as I get that phone call or email from an individual, an organization, a legislator, then, then I feel like we can start the conversation and see where it goes. And sometimes the conversation progresses. Like in New Mexico, it progressed very very powerfully, very quickly. Um, like in California, not so much. Um, so uh, so it's, it's driven much more by the interest of the people than, than by the most you know, recent election. That being said, I will say that there is a great effort going forth in the state of Maryland, really being embraced and driven by organizations and the people there. Um, Michigan, just this past year, has gotten in touch and we have this great grassroots steering committee that is working together. Um, and we've just put up the, the proposed language that we wanna see advance or that they wanna see advance on the website. And um, Minnesota, haven't heard anything from them yet. So if you're from Minnesota and listening, feel free to give me a call. But this is a great way to say, you know, for people who just wanna learn generally what's happening in their state, if you go to the forthegenerations.org website, right? So it's www.forthegenerations.org. You can go there and find every state where something is happening. In those states where we have the most robust action, we have um, a special URL and tend to have special websites for that state, either a page on our site, but often it's a special robust website. Um, and the website always goes, the state's initials, plus greenamendment.org. So New Mexico, it's www.nmgreenamendment.org. For Michigan, we have a page. So it's migreenamendment.org, right? Hawaii, it's H-I. You get the point. So if yep. anybody's listening and they, you know, they can go to forthegenerations.org and they can hop to any state or, you know, if they think their state must surely be on it, then just do your state's initials plus greenamendment.org and you'll find out. And we'll include some links in the in the show notes as well. Uh, I have another question about politics, unless Bob. Uh, go ahead, and I'll ask mine after. Yeah, I'm. I mean, I'm. I'm pretty well. One uh, reading uh, reading early on, you talk about Manchester and East Houston. We're actually both out of both out of Houston. I'm even though I live in California, I'm, I'm like fifth generation Houstonian, um, and Bob lives there now when he's not in Ohio. But like you know, the the interesting story about Manchester and East Houston is how the city of Houston actually regulating the ship channel and regulating, you know, the, what I used to call it Pasadena or Stinkadena when, I, when we lived there or when I lived there. 
but like, you know, it's, it's like oil and gas, like heavy industry. And then the industry came back and did a huge pushback in the courts. And I'm wondering, are we, are you also seeing an industry pushback on removing the green amendments? Yeah. And so for those who are listening, as you said, and it's been very interesting in, in Texas because there's a lot of issues around environmental racism and environmental justice. Oil and gas, you know, is inflicting a lot of harm on a lot of people. And yet we've seen some very powerful efforts with local government trying to use their authority to put in place increased protections at the local level that then has gotten challenged by the state and then ends up in the court system. And the courts have sided with the state and stripped from those local government entities that protection that they, or those local communities, the protection that their local government put in place. And, you know, it's really quite a parallel to Pennsylvania because in Pennsylvania, um, one of the things that that Act 13 did was it tried to strip local municipalities of their zoning authority that would allow them to limit how fracking operations, you know, where fracking operations in their community could be allowed to advance. In other words, only in the industrial zone. Um, and part of the victory that we achieved with our lawsuit there was that actually the, um, the, the Supreme Court sided with the people because of the constitutional right and and supported that local government authority and obligation to protect natural resources and the environment, which is exactly the opposite of what happened in, in Texas. And one of the big differences is the presence of a green amendment or the absence um, thereof. So I think that that was really um, significant. And I actually forget what was your real question because I answered my, my thought that came to my brain in response to your question. It's all good. Just how much industry is pushing back oh. on trying to pass green amendments in legislatures. Yeah. So, so we do, um, we know that they are going around, squirreling around behind the scenes, um, you know, with their talking points. And we hear a lot of talking points, like one of the big talking points of opposition is if you have a green amendment, there will be unintended consequences. You know, they're not saying what those things will be, just so there'll be unintended consequences, you know, things like that. As opposed to the intended consequences of pollution and the climate crisis. Right, right. Or the intended consequences of a Green Amendment, which is, hey, clean water and clean air, right, for all. Um, so so they are they are behind the scenes. And I, I think that they um, uh, they work it very hard behind the scenes, but they tend not, not to be very... Um, public or open about their opposition. And I think that that's because they realize that they look stupid. They look stupid and cruel if they say, you know, you, your child, your grandchildren, they don't deserve clean water coming out of their household faucet, right? They don't deserve the right to take in a breath of fresh air and not fall on the ground from an asthma attack or a heart attack, you know, or get ADHD or Alzheimer's because of the contaminants, you know, the pollution that we're, we want to spew into the air. So I think that even they themselves realize how, how foolish they appear. And consequently, they tend to work behind the scenes. So it's not as overt and clear um, how much they're doing behind the scenes, but we know there's action and activity there. On the other hand, in our, you know, in our public dialogue and work, we're very clear that a Green Amendment is, it does not, will not 
um, you know, shut down economic development or business operations in Pennsylvania. It, it certainly has not ended fracking, regardless of what I think about that. Um, that's not what it has done. What a Green Amendment does is it ensures um, or works to ensure because it takes time to implement, right? And we've only had it for, you know, less, less than a decade in, in Pennsylvania, which isn't that much time for a constitution to have its, have its um, beneficial effects. But what it does is it says if you're going to advance your business or your industry, you just have to do it in a way that protects the environmental rights of the people as well. And find a way to do that. And we're all good. And I would suggest to you for almost every industry, there's a way to do that. Um, part of it, though, is how you frame the question. You know, in the energy context, the question has to be, how do we create energy? Not how do we frack? Right. Um, and when you frame it as how do we create energy, you're na you naturally end up on that clean, renewable energy pathway. Um, so, you know, it really helps reshape thinking in a whole lot of ways, but it certainly does not end business operations or economic development. In fact, green amendments are very, very helpful to economic development, because as we have proven time and time again in our country and beyond, a clean and healthy environment is good for economic development. In fact, it's essential for economic development. It's pollution and contamination that loses us jobs and um, profits and business goals. Um, but when we protect the environment and people and workers at the same time, we can all go forth to a, to a happy, healthy future, both in terms of the quality of people's lives and their health, saving money that we don't have to waste on healthcare costs or responding to human-induced flooding and flood damages and droughts, um, while also allowing business to operate in a way that actually makes them money and saves them money too. Um, yeah, actually, that was what I was going to ask about the opposition to it, because um, being in Texas, it's unimaginable <clears throat> that, you know, something like this would happen here. But um, it actually makes me think. Wait, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you. We have interest from Texas. And I'm sure you have interest. I, 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 the, the oil companies, I mean, utterly control Texas. I mean, it's just it's wow. it's impossible. Um, you mentioned at the beginning, you know, fracking at Pennsylvania. What other kinds of issues can, can or have been or, or could be used? I mean, if I don't want a nuclear power plant in my state or if, uh, you know, um, in Texas, for instance, there's no regulation. So whenever there's a, a, a tropical storm or a hurricane, uh, you know, there's like 500 chemical and, and uh, petroleum plants on the coast that just get battered. And, you know, the groundwater is full of benzene and, and uh, organic peroxide and every kind of carcinogenic imaginable. So what kinds of, of actual, you know, like um, environmental focus can be attached to these amendments? What can, you know, what can I go and say, hey, you have to stop this because we have an amendment. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so it's all going to be very case specific. So that's a pretty broad way to frame it. So why don't I just yeah. give you some examples of how it's exactly? Yeah, that's great. My, um, my clumsy question was getting at that. So <laughs> thank you for interpreting it. So, so, you know, just to give a little bit more clarity amongst the things that that Act 13 law did, right, that we defeated were stripping local municipalities of their zoning authority, right, to, to again, cordon off industrial fracking operations so they were limited to the parts of the community where other industrial operations were. Um, 
the what Act 13 did was it actually mandated that fracking be allowed in the heart of residential communities and agricultural communities, with operating fracking well pads being allowed to be located as close as 300 feet from people's homes. Um, it also alleviated the industry of the obligation to notify people on private drinking water wells that their drinking water had become potentially contaminated by nearby fracking. Um, and it put in place automatic waivers from environmental protection standards that would apply to every other industry. So that gives a little bit more clarity. And, and there were other things, but that gives a little bit more clarity on that. In Montana, I talked about industrial gold mining. So there have been two instances where permits have been granted by the state environmental protection agency that would have allowed industrial gold mining operations in places and spaces where it would have had devastating consequences for critical rivers, for remote ecosystems just outside of Yellowstone National Park, which would have had environmental implications, but also economic implications. Uh, and what community groups there were able to do was say that, uh, demonstrate that the environmental agency did not consider the science or the impacts or the environmental rights of the people. And as a result, the permits granted for those industrial gold mining operations got voided, got rescinded. So those operations couldn't advance um, unless they were able to find a way to comply with the Constitution at the same time. Um, and in fact, those permits never advance. So, you know, preventing dangerous industrial operations in wrong places and spaces using the wrong operations. In the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we have a, um, a toxic site. It's been in a super saturated toxic condition for over 30 years with a spreading pollution plume, having serious consequences for the health and the safety of the communities around and the environments. And the state was doing nothing to clean it up. Despite is that, the is that, that DMOC, DMOC? It's, D -E it's DEP, oh, oh DMIC, that's a fracking. Yeah, yeah uh, DMIC is a fracking story. Sorry. This sorry. is Bishop Tube, this is Bishop Tube. And, um, what we were able to do was, was uh, uh, claim that the state's failure to enforce existing law to secure the cleanup of that site by known responsible parties that had lots of money, Whitaker, Cons Whitaker Corporation and Johnson Matthey, um, that that failure to get the site cleaned up was a violation of the Environmental Rights Amendment of the Constitution. Um, so through our, our litigation and our advocacy, a complement of the two, that site is now on a path to clean up because of the Green Amendment. In states across our nation, there are there's a man-made family of chemicals used by industry and by the military called PFAS, per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. The military uses has used it in firefighting foam. Industry has used it like DuPont, uh, Teflon is PFAS. Um, stain resistant carpeting and clothing is because of PFAS chemicals. And th these chemicals are, are very dangerous for human health and the environment. Because of a absence of law and regulation to prevent their use in a way that allowed those chemicals to get out into the environment, drinking water supplies in, in the majority of states across our nation, really around the world, are contaminated by PFAS. People have been drinking it in their drinking water. Farmers have been using PFAS-laden water to irrigate their farms. There are all kinds of ways it's gotten into the environment and gotten into people's bodies, really wreaking 
havoc. And it was the havoc and it was the lack of law that allowed industry and the military to use PFAS in this devastating way. Number one, I believe if we had had green amendments everywhere, um, while all of this was starting up, we could have used the green amendments to prevent the PFAS from being used without protections that kept it out of the environment. So that's one way that it could be used um, if they had existed. But a way it has been used in Pennsylvania was again through our advocacy and complemented by legal action. We have um, uh, gotten the state to recognize that they have a constitutional obligation to put in place drinking water protections to get PFAS out and to keep it out. So we're getting those protections. And then just one other example in Montana, there was a um, there was a, a contract between parties to advance a development project that required uh, test drilling for drinking water supplies. And it was demonstrated that if that test well for drinking water had been drilled, that the result would have been to con potentially contaminate the entire drinking water supply of the town of, of Bozeman with another toxic contaminant called PCE that was already floating around in the aquifer and the drilling would sort of change the dynamics and release this chemical. Because of the Green Amendment, um, si significantly because of the Green Amendment in the um, court case around whether or not the 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 state could be forced to mandate this test well drilling it was decided that no the state actually could not get involved to force the test well drilling and in fact could not even allow the test well drilling because the ramification was to contaminate an entire town's drinking water supply so we protected we protected the town of Bozeman from that contamination. So those are just, oh, and just recently, um, a, a local community in, in Pennsylvania rejected a development project that would have resulted in the, the, the decimation of an old growth beech tree forest in their suburban town, a town that's quickly urbanizing. It's outside Philadelphia. Developer wanted to develop, but relying on the Green Amendment um, in very significant part, the town said, no, we have an obligation to protect natural resources for present and future generations um, based on the constitution. And so we are rejecting your application. And, you know, again, that maybe the de developer could have challenged it and you would have had more dynamics, but the end result was actually that the refusal to grant the permit resulted ultimately in the permanent protection of that old old growth beech tree forest. So that's how a local town used it. So it's been used by people, it's, used, it's been used by state government and it's been used by local government to tremendous great effect to protect the environment in a variety of ways. <clears throat> this is the Green and Red Podcast, Scott and Bob. So if you're uh, watching on YouTube or listening or whatever, make sure you hit the like button and please subscribe and, and definitely share it. Um, we're getting close to the time here. So I just have like one last question. And you've just mentioned a bunch of like specific examples. Your main issue is, is the Green Amendment. But if if a state doesn't have that, but there are people trying to get some kind of environmental regulations passed, do you work with them as well on kind of more specific things that aren't like amendment related? So in the, in the Delaware River watershed, and my role is the Delaware Riverkeeper, um, and my watershed includes uh, portions of New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware, 
We work to advance good regulations, stop bad laws, you know, challenge bad permits, uh, challenge bad development projects, you know, try to get increased protections for species on the brink of extinction, and do you know all the grassroots organizing and advocacy and litigation necessary to advance all the different pathways for protection. In my Green Amendment for the Generations movement, though, that is really about helping people to be empowered through this constitutional protection, to understand what this idea is, how it makes a difference, so that they can go forth as leaders in their community and make it happen. Under, and then once it happens, to help utilize the protection. Like in, in New York and Pennsylvania, there, um, there are others who are doing it in Montana, you know, we're trying to help through advocacy and or legal support use the amendment to secure that most powerful protection. So wearing my Green Amendments for the Generations hat, it's really about that education, organizing, expert support for why this pathway is so powerful and important. Because there are other organizations in, you know, New Mexico and Florida and Washington and Maine who who do that other good um, work around those other pathways. Like I do as the Delaware Riverkeeper, there are other organizations that do that already within the state. They don't need me to come in and try to plot myself on top of them. This is, but the Green Amendment is something unique and different and um, requires a unique body of experience and knowledge that I happen to have. So that's what I come in and, and try to be a good partner on. One thing we've seen at a national level, which is like very much around, very much around environmental and climate issues, is the Green New Deal. And I'm I'm wondering uh, if if there's one that has like definitely heightened awareness around these issues. And I'm wondering if you've seen any sort of like if you saw a greater spike in interest in green amendments when uh, like AOC did when in the, did the sit-in at Pelosi's office. Or if like if that if there's like a dovetailing of the movement around the, the Green New Deal and, and the Green Amendment. No, not really, because they're two different concepts on two different pathways. The I think the biggest thing they have in common is the word green. Um, and I just want to say the Green Amendment movement started before the Green New Deal. So right. took my word. I didn't take their word, man. Um, but. <laughs> No, the Green New Deal is really important, right? And it's about advancing policies and investments and programs designed to advance environmental protection. And that's powerful and that's important. But it is not about the Constitution or constitutional empowerment. That's what the Green Amendment is about. Um, and so, in fact, if anything, I sometimes get pushback because people... Uh, um, are either opposed to or don't understand or have been disappointed in the Green New Deal and what it it uh, it, it it has promised um, and has yet to still accomplish. And so people say, well, we don't want to use that green, green language because, and what I, you know, I explain to people, listen, there, it, it's, it's, it's really about understanding what the concept is. All different kinds of movements have different words. Um, and in fact, the Green Amendment has this great resonance and synergy now because so many states are advancing it. Um, that it's actually helpful to use the language, but sometimes in a state they don't want to, right? In Maine, they felt that they wanted to use different terminology. So in Maine, the amendment's called the Pine Tree Amendment because that's what resonated with the advocates for that state, right? And it's their amendment, right? Again, I'm right. just supporting them. Um, so I really haven't seen that kind of um, um, 
uplifting. Like I said, in, in some ways, it's just created um, conversation about what's the right thing to call a, the Green Amendment movement in our state. And pretty much most states say, yeah, the Green Amendment works. And in some states like New York, where they try to say, oh, we're just going to call it an environmental rights amendment. It just didn't stick. Everybody wanted to call it the Green Amendment because they all knew what it was and they understood it and it rolled off the tongue. Um, So, Excellent. Uh, I think we're getting to our time. The last question is, do you want to tell our audience uh, how they can get involved, where they can find out more information? Like I said, we'll put links in the in the show notes, but, you know, please, please make your pitch for more people to get involved. So this really, I really appreciate that. And I so appreciate being on the on, on the show because this really is about a people-driven movement. This really is about the power of the people, which is so much of what your show is about, right? And lifting up the power of the people. We're all about so, people power here. It's all about people power. And that's what this is. That's what the constitution is, right? It's and and this is about people taking their power back. Because when it came to the environment, right, government like sort of co-opted their environmental protection power. And this is people saying, no, 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 we have these environmental rights and you may not infringe on them, just like you can infringe on our rights to free speech. So it's really empowering and powerful in a lot of ways. Um, But if anybody wants to get involved, if you do go to www.forthegenerations, F-O-R, forthegenerations.org, you can see what we're doing nationally. You can see what's happening in your state. You can figure out how to connect in your state. And if you don't have a movement happening in your state, but you want to be the inspiration for it, um, you'll be able to email me, phone me, contact me through the website. And I will literally be the person to get back in touch with you to see how to move it. And then, of course, there's the Green Amendment, the People's Fight for a Clean, Safe and Healthy Environment is the new book out. This is actually the second edition of the book. Um bringing it up to date and having special chapters about environmental racism in the climate crisis. And that's a great way to learn about what actually is this concept? How do I make it happen? How do I talk about it? Um, And can be a really good starting place for people wanting to learn more. Excellent. This has been a fascinating conversation. um, Definitely a fascinating read. Like I said, I read it over the weekend and I I really enjoyed particularly the, the various stories of environmental injustice and how the how this could be a potential solution to it, um, folks. You've been listening to the Green and Red podcast, talking with Maya Van Rossum uh, with the Green Amendment for the Generations and the De- Delaware Riverkeeper Network. Uh, if you like what you're hearing, please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit that subscribe button. Uh, and if you really like our work, you can make a donation at greenandredpodcast.org and just hit that support button. The end of the year donations are already starting to roll in. So much appreciation to everyone out there. And if you want to become a patron, uh, go to patreon.org backslash greenredpodcast and support us there. Um, everyone and else? We, we also have, uh, if you donate, we also have calendars and books. Oh, yeah. and, and we're going to have some more books available soon. Yep, calendar. So Right. We, we've started for, selling some of these as well. Yeah. So uh, for what, 25 or more, well, we, you can get some. We're, we're, if you donate a lot, we can start getting some swag. So I know some people are like dying to wear green and red, like hoodies and T-shirts and things like that. So we're, yep. we're coming after the New York people. You know? Yeah. Got a plan. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Maya, thanks for coming on. Thanks uh, so much. Good luck. April- Everyone else out there make trouble and misbehave, and we'll talk again soon. The planet for another day at the St. Shoppers 
by with a conscience and save save the planet for another day save Alaska let the caribou stay don't care what the government say they all bought and paid for anyway save the planet for another day hey big oil what do you say we were running through the night never knowing if we would see the light paranoid schizophrenic visions living in fear of the wrong decisions